Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. With us today from Harvard Medical School are the authors of our recent newsletter on the metabolic effects of contemporary antiretroviral therapies, Dr. Suman Srinivasa, Assistant Professor of Medicine, and Nurse Practitioner Kathleen Fitch, Assistant Professor of Medicine. EHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Merkin Company Incorporated. Learning objectives for this audio program include identify the potential metabolic complications among people with chronic HIV infection and discuss managing metabolic complications in the setting of contemporary antiretroviral therapies. Our guests have both disclosed that neither has any relationship with any product or service relevant to this discussion. Further, both our guests have indicated that there will be no references to the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products in their presentation. Katie Fitch, Dr. Srinivasa, thank you both for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much. It's quite a pleasure to be here as well. In your newsletter issue, you reviewed the recent literature explaining how even the newer and safer antiretroviral regimens, uh, what we've been calling the contemporary art regimens, may still be linked to the metabolic diseases that are frequently occurring in people with HIV. Conditions like osteoporosis, fatty liver, weight gain, and cardiovascular disease. What I'd like to do today is look at how some of that new data can impact clinical management. So let's get things started with a patient presentation. Uh, If you would, please, Dr. Srinivasa. We have a 48-year-old female with a chronic history of HIV and hep C infection who's been on long-term treatment with tenofovir, disoproxyl fumarate, or TDF, emtricitabine, and efavirenz. So bone disease, osteoporosis, is there really a higher prevalence among people with HIV? Well, yes, this is something that we need to be concerned about. So what does the evidence say? So there are prospective studies, for example, that compare the NHANES and SUN databases, and meta-analyses have also demonstrated that the prevalence of osteopenia and osteoporosis are are greater in HIV. And in fact, it's estimated that there may be an approximate six-fold increase in reduced bone mineral density and an approximate four-fold increase in osteoporosis among HIV-positive individuals. And while it's not conclusive, there are data to suggest that fracture rates are increased among the HIV population. Uh, Katie, talk to us about the additional risk factors for bone disease. What do clinicians need to be aware of? There are a number of risk factors to be aware of, and some of them are the direct effects of antiretroviral therapy on bone cells and vitamin D metabolism. Also, TDF-containing regimens have been associated with declines in bone mineral density, and potential mechanisms for the TDF-associated bone loss have included both direct effects on the bone via interaction with osteoblasts and osteoclasts, or the indirect effects on via alterations in proximal renal tubular function leading to subsequent phosphate wasting or vitamin D metabolism. Other additional risk factors, Dr. Srinivasa? So Katie mentioned some factors that were related to antiretroviral therapies. However, it's really important for providers to be aware of other HIV-specific factors. And some of these that may include the increased risk of hypogonadism, early menopause, which on average happens around the age of 51 years, chronic immune activation, inflammation, body composition changes, as well as direct viral effects on the bone or HCV co-infection, as in this patient. 
So how should this patient be managed? Well, if tolerated, the provider should consider a switch from TDF to tenofovirol alphamonide or TAF, and this may reduce side effects on bone health. We've really seen that the studies have shown that TAF is thought to be safer for bone health, and this is mainly due to its properties as a prodrug with 90% reduction in plasma tenofovir concentrations itself. So as immunologic control is the most important goal overall for patients, ART switch should not compromise virologic suppression. However, we do know that switching from TDF to TAF can result in improvements in both the lumbar and hip components, which can be beneficial for patients. Katie, anything to add? So in addition to what Dr. Srinivasa just mentioned, it's also important to calculate a FRAC score to determine if a bisphosphonate can be used to increase or stabilize bone mineral density in HIV. This FRAC score can be accessed online and the calculation is fairly easy. I just asked for some risk factors for bone mineral density or for a patient living with HIV or anyone for that matter. Also, it's really important to counsel patients on other lifestyle factors. This includes calcium and vitamin D supplementation, dietary calcium, weight-bearing exercises, and activity as tolerated are also really important to recommend to patients. Thank you both for that case and discussion. And we'll return with Dr. Suman Srinivasa and nurse practitioner Katie Fitch in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this EHIV Review Podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. EHIV Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with HIV and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, brings that expert perspective to translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for EHIV Review is jointly provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information about EHIV Review, please go to our website, ehivreview.org. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. We're here with Dr. Suman Srinivasa and nurse practitioner Katie Fitch from Harvard Medical School. And we've been talking about the clinical applications of the new evidence about HIV-associated metabolic diseases. So to continue from that practice-based perspective, Katie, let me ask you to bring us another patient scenario, if you would, please. The next patient is a 56-year-old male with chronic history of HIV, and he's currently treated with efavirenz and FTC and TDF combination, and his BMI is 38, and he's presenting for routine management. What specific comorbidities might this patient be at risk for? Well, this regimen places the patient at risk for multiple metabolic comorbidities, and some of them include diabetes, insulin resistance, high triglycerides, or hypertriglyceridemia, and cardiovascular disease, just to name a few. And depending on the distribution of the weight that this patient has, he could be at even higher risk for metabolic disease, especially if there's evidence of increased abdominal girth or increased abdominal fat gain. Dr. Srinivasa. How should a clinician go about assessing this patient's metabolic risk? So when seeing this patient in the clinical setting, a few things can be done by the provider. Body composition assessment can be done, and this includes the waist circumference, which we can measure using a tape measure. And we know that changes in fat redistribution, 
such as related to an increased waist circumference, are really important in gauging metabolic complications. Aside from a clinical exam and looking at the body composition, we can also monitor metabolically through blood work or through risk calculations, and we can obtain fasting insulins and glucose to look at insulin resistance, as well as a hemoglobin A1C to assess for diabetes, a lipid panel to look for high cholesterol, particularly high triglycerides. As Katie previously mentioned, we can also look at liver function tests to assess for any risk for fatty liver disease. We can take blood pressure. And finally, it might be useful to calculate an ASCVD risk score from the online calculator. Now, we know that we're really limited in the clinical setting as to how we can assess metabolic complications for those individuals that are HIV positive. We know that there are some procedures that can be done that include radiologic modalities and more invasive procedures to assess things like visceral fat accumulation, which patients with HIV are more at risk for. And this may actually be linked to a higher risk of metabolic complications, but are really not the standard of care nor reimbursed for through the clinical setting. Thank you, doctor. Now, Katie, you mentioned that his art regimen places him at risk for metabolic complications. Are there specific regimens that we know are detrimental to weight and body composition? This is a really great question. So NRTIs have been implicated in mitochondrial toxicity and death of fat cells. And this was previously thought to contribute more so to lipoatrophy or loss of healthy fat, especially in the extremities, so the arms and the legs. And then older medications in this class, such as AZT, had more detrimental effects than the current contemporary antiretroviral therapy medications in the same class, such as TAF or Abacavir. And then the other class, NNRTI, such as Efavirenz, have been associated with loss of fat, but less so than other classes. They've also been associated with impairment in fat cells, as well as increased inflammation. What about the protease inhibitors, the PIs? Doctor? Well, the PIs have also been implicated in body composition changes and may have some detriment as well. These were initially implicated in reduced fat cell generation, as well as decreasing triglyceride uptake and storage in the fat, as well as increasing insulin resistance. And the most notorious one for this is probably ritonavir. And with regards to other classes, it's also thought now that integrase inhibitors might have been a less toxic effect of ART for weight gain. However, there are initial data starting to suggest that increased weight gain occurs with medications in this class as well. And in general, we know that ART switches don't work for weight gain. And in this regard, really increasing BMI or body mass index has been associated with CD4 cell recovery. And this might just be a function of all ART treatment and why we see this broadly across all classes. Interesting point, doctor. So what about people who are initiating ART? Should they be worried about weight gain? Katie? Well, several recent large-scale studies have shown that initiation of ART does increase risk of gaining weight, and especially within the first few months after initiating ART. This is even with contemporary regimens that people are taking more recently. We also know that women have a tendency to gain more weight than men after they initiate ART. And this relationship has been found even when controlling for things like age, the ART regimen, HIV factors such as CD4 count and viral load, as well as race and ethnicity. And then the benefits of ART to prolong life, however, and keep people healthy 
do exceed the concern about weight gain, and this is a really important point. So the recommendation is for patients who are newly initiating ART, they really should be counseled about lifestyle habits to prevent weight gain if they are initiating ART. Thank you both for that case and discussion. We've got time for one more patient scenario, so if you would please, Dr. Srinivasa. So in our last case, we have a patient who is a 55-year-old female with a 15-year history of HIV infection, hypertension, current tobacco use, and a 10-year ASCBD risk estimate of 5.8%, who's been on long-term treatment with darunavir and ritonavir plus a TDF-FTC combination. Her current viral load is undetectable, the CD4 count is greater than 800 cells per milliliter, and the patient denies any current side effects from her antiretroviral therapy regimen. How great is the risk of developing cardiovascular disease in people living with HIV? Well, we know that large epidemiologic cohort studies have demonstrated that the prevalence of cardiovascular disease is higher in people with HIV infection, even after adjusting for traditional CBD risk factors. And this is really an important point to take home. We know that it's estimated from these analyses that people with HIV infection have an approximate 1.5-fold increased risk of having a myocardial infarction or MI relative to those individuals living without HIV. So for the healthcare provider managing a person with HIV, how should screening for cardiovascular disease be performed? Uh, Katie, your thoughts? Well, this is a really good question, and sometimes it's confusing for providers working with people who are living with HIV. So the really important point is that there are no specific guidelines for the assessment and treatment of cardiovascular disease that are based on people who have HIV. And so routine evaluations should be guided by the clinical guidelines used for people without HIV, so for the general population. What about risk calculators? There are risk calculators available. So we had previously mentioned the FRAC score. There's a similar calculator available for screening for cardiovascular disease for people living with HIV. And these were developed for the general population and they predict cardiovascular disease risk. And one such calculator is the ACC AHA ASCBD risk estimator. Again, this is available online, and studies have shown, however, that these calculators actually underestimate risk for people with HIV because they were not modeled using people with HIV. And so for the patient in our case, while her 10-year predicted estimate of developing a heart disease event is relatively low at 5.8% over the next 10 years, because she has HIV, her risk actually may be a little bit higher than is estimated with the current calculators that we have available. Dr. Srinivasa, for patients with HIV, what potential CVD risk factors do they need to be aware of? So really, risk factors for cardiovascular disease in this setting of HIV infection can be split into two categories. The traditional risk factors, which we would think of in the general population, are really those factors that are known to be risks for cardiovascular disease, such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, a family history of heart disease, age. And while non-traditional factors are HIV-specific, this is the second category that I would think of. Some non-traditional risk factors that we may think of in particular include chronic immune activation and inflammation, CD4 count, the number of years that someone has been living with HIV, the effects of antiretroviral therapy medications, and these are just some of them. As we start to learn about these non-traditional risk factors more, these might be something that we could incorporate into the ASCBD risk calculator, as Katie mentioned, to help us reduce the underestimation of risk in HIV. So this patient we've been discussing, 
She's on darunavir and ritonavir, plus a TDF-FTC combination. Does she need to switch her current antiviral regimens to reduce her CVD risk? Katie, how should this patient be managed? So for this patient, it's really important to weigh the risks and benefits of switching from her current antiretroviral therapy regimen that has been effective for her. You know, she's remained virally suppressed and probably no side effects since she's been on this regimen for a while. So it's not so easy to just switch to a different regimen that may not be as effective and may have unwanted side effects. And recent data using contemporary antiretroviral therapies have demonstrated the CVD potential effects are not actually a class effect, but rather an individual drug effect. And in this case, her estimate of 5.8% According to the current guidelines, the ASCBD guidelines doesn't call for initiation of statin therapy at this point. And so it's really important to look at other things besides switching her regimen since she's not at super high risk. Doctor, your thoughts? So at this point, we can do what we can as providers, and it's important to make sure the patient has up-to-date screening for other risk factors that we mentioned, more of the traditional risk factors. And this may include a cholesterol panel, a fasting blood glucose, BMI monitoring, a blood pressure evaluation, and of course, diet and exercise should always be assessed at each encounter. Upon speaking to the patient, we can really educate them on any modifiable lifestyle factors that may be relevant, such as counseling on smoking cessation, as well as any sort of diet and exercise counseling that may be useful and beneficial to reducing the risk of heart disease. Katie, one final question. In your expert opinion, what needs to happen to improve HIV-related metabolic complication outcomes? As people with HIV are living longer and we see more and more metabolic complications in this population, addressing the risk of metabolic complications in clinic settings and integrating these into the care of people with HIV is of utmost importance in the future. So it's really important that we optimize the risk calculators and develop calculators that accurately estimate risk in people living with HIV and also identifying novel therapeutic options, including anti-inflammatory strategies that address those HIV-specific risk factors. And finally, it's important to understand the sex-specific mechanisms to guide how we may reduce risk differently among men and women with HIV. I want to thank you both for sharing your insights in today's cases and discussion. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's key takeaways as they relate to our learning objectives. The first one is to be able to identify the potential metabolic complications among people with chronic HIV infection. Katie? Today, we talked about a number of metabolic complications that people with HIV are experiencing. So we talked about bone disease, cardiovascular disease, and weight gain, specifically about BMI or weight gain at time of HIV diagnosis. We've noted that this has been steadily increasing and has been attributed to a number of factors, including CD4 count antiretroviral therapy, and even contemporary antiretroviral therapy regimens. Also, we have noted a higher prevalence of low bone mineral density in the HIV population when compared to people without HIV. And finally, with regard to cardiovascular disease, we see that it's common among people with HIV, and as antiretroviral therapy has become readily available throughout the world, cardiovascular disease will become even more common as the life expectancy of people with HIV approaches that of people without HIV. And our second learning objective, Dr. Srinivasa, to be able to discuss managing metabolic complications in the setting of contemporary antiretroviral therapies. 
So the most important thing a provider can do is just be aware of the heightened risk of metabolic complications in HIV, as we've discussed today, and to impart that upon the patient during their encounter in the clinic. It's really important that patients are educated of this increased risk as well. As we discussed, we're very limited in what we can do to reduce metabolic complications given the increased prevalence in HIV. However, we can use our traditional treatment and management strategies to reduce the risk and given that ART is so effective at suppressing HIV and prolonging life, achieving immunologic suppression is really the primary goal, and therefore switching to a different regimen to prevent or reduce metabolic complications is very much a decision based on each individual's patient characteristics as well as risk factors for the metabolic complications. And we may just have to treat the underlying secondary metabolic complications without considering ART switch. So overall, it's important really to assess the current ART regimen as well as other risk factors and make modifications when necessary for the optimal outcome, recognizing that this will differ for each individual patient. From Harvard Medical School, Dr. Suman Srinivasa, nurse practitioner Kathleen Fitch, thank you both for being part of this eHIV Review podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me and Katie. We really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me and Dr. Srinivasa today. It's been really nice to share some of our knowledge with you. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehivreview.org. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, available online to clinicians treating patients with HIV. This activity has been developed for primary care physicians, NPs, PAs, nurses, HIV specialists, OBGYNs, infectious disease physicians, and others involved in the care of patients with HIV. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register, please go to our website, ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Merck and Company Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.